Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is supported by Golden Artist Colors, manufacturing in upstate New York, Golden Acrylics, Williamsburg Oils, and more recently, Core Watercolors, an employee-owned company committed to producing the highest quality materials while maintaining a culture of stewardship and community involvement. I've been using Golden for over 20 years, and I swear by it. For more information about Golden Artist Colors, visit them online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School. The legendary New York Studio School marathons are immersive courses that emphasize experimental learning and expand the boundaries of what drawing, painting, and sculpture can be. Fall marathons take place September 8th to the 18th, Artists can choose to participate in person or register for the virtual drawing marathon with Dean Graham Nixon and guests to join from anywhere in the world. Apply online today at nyss.org or email info at nyss.org or follow the school on Instagram at ny underscore studio school. Linda Nguyen Lopez is a first-generation American artist of Vietnamese and Mexican descent from Visalia, California. Linda received a BFA from the California State University of Chico and an MFA from the University of Colorado at Boulder. Her works have been exhibited in Italy, New Zealand, England, and throughout the United States, including the Craft Contemporary Museum in Los Angeles, Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville, Long Beach Museum of Art in Long Beach, The Whole Gallery in New York, Fisher Parish in Brooklyn, The Jane Hartsook Gallery at Greenwich House Pottery in New York, and Museum of Art and Design in New York. She's been an artist in residence at the Clay Studio Archie Bray Foundation, Creta Rome, and Greenwich House Pottery. She currently lives and works in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and she has an upcoming show at Maillet Gallery in Paris. I spoke to Linda from her place in Arkansas about her upbringing, finding art, and the magic of materials. Here's our conversation. You're in Arkansas, right? Yeah. And you teach there, right? I do. I teach at the University of Arkansas uh, in ceramics and foundations. Um, It's pretty cool. I mean, I didn't imagine uh, moving here um, when I did. When did you move? Uh, 2012. Um, Oh, so it's been a little. Yeah. Yeah, And I I actually really love it. Um, So my husband, um, we met in grad school at the University of Colorado Boulder. Um, and he was a year ahead of me. So when he graduated, he like went off to teach in New Zealand and then we came back, he came back and went to Montana to the Archie Bray for residency. And then I went to, um, the clay studio in Philadelphia. So I was actually in Philadelphia when he was like, Oh, you should move out here. And I'm like, "Mm, I don't know. Um, and I was like, I'll move out there if you marry me. (laughs) I was like, I'm not going to move to Arkansas and then get dumped and then be stuck in Arkansas. I was like, I don't know how I feel about that. (laughs) Um, and I was like, if you marry me and get me a goat and he's like a goat. And I'm like, yeah, I was like, if I'm going to live in the country, I'm going to live in the country. 
Um, so I grew up on a small little farm with a bunch of goats and cows. So for me, it was kind of like this comforting animal to have around. Um, so I moved here in 2012 and we moved out into like the country, um, about maybe 15, 20 minutes from like the town of Fayetteville. Mm -hmm. And, um, we had, we lived on like, it was a rental, but we lived on like 30 acres. I got like 16 chickens. I never got a goat because they actually are companion animals. And so you have to have two. So the funniest thing is like on the drives in and out of town, like coming into campus, um, I would see this goat on like a, like a long chain and they would like post them up along the side of the roads and they would just graze down the grass. Right. So it's like this living lawnmower. Um, and so like, you know, I was like, oh, I can't wait to have like my goat on a rope. Like it'll be so exciting. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, I still don't have any goats, um, and I don't have the chickens anymore. Was one the cutoff point pretty much for goats? You didn't want to have two? Well, I've just heard a lot of crazy stories about goats. I mean, like I've never experienced craziness with goats because we had like an actual like, you know, like barn and uh, like a corral for them and everything. So it was never really, I never really had any crazy situations. But people are like, oh, yeah, those things like will bust into your house and like eat your couch. And I'm like, Okay, like, and our property now is maybe two and a half acres, I think, but, um, so it's doable because most of it, it's woods, um, but yeah, like, I feel like I don't want just one goat, I would like a lot of them, so one day, one day, I think I'll start with chickens, we have a small child, which is probably the same thing, (laughs) no, it's not the same thing as raising a a goat, but, but the energy level feels the same. Yeah, and they can destroy a couch. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, well, that's a tricky time. You have one, right? You said you had a daughter. She's your only? Yeah, her name is Una, and she is three and a half. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's Yeah, it's, um, you know, having a kid is like another full-time job. <laughs> yeah, and we're so lucky because, you know, we did move to like the middle of the country. Well, kind of, but... Um, and, you know, all of our family members live all over the U.S. And because our daughter is the only, will be the only grandchild between both sides of the family, um, all of the grandparents moved here. So, oh, wow. yeah, from California to Illinois, from Georgia. Um, so we have like a, re- a really amazing kind of uh, like family group here. Um, and a lot of networking help, which is really great. Um, wow. You guys are so lucky and clearly your family really likes you guys. (laughs) They like our daughter. Yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) Um, well, that's a big move. Arkansas is a big change, isn't it? Yeah. It's, I mean, we live in a funny pocket, you know, it's Northwest Arkansas. Um, so, you know, really like the University of Arkansas, Fayetteville is like a college town, uh, but you kind of have this like Northwest Arkansas corridor um, where there's like Bentonville, which is like where um, the uh, Walton Family Foundation started the um, Crystal Bridges Museum, actually Alice Walton, um, the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. Um, they also just opened the Momentary, which is like a contemporary art space for all arts. Um, and then, um, 
you know, you have Tyson. Um, so it's like, there's a lot of corporate here, but there's also a lot of energy, um, for kind of like a creative community. Um, so it's been really great. Um, I know that the Waltons also have a hand in kind of developing the, um, the cycling scene and the mountain biking scene here. So there are like tons of trails to like, if you want to get outside, which is really amazing. It's super beautiful. It's really green and lush. I mean, it's really humid during the summer, but, um, but if you're into biking, it's a really great place to be, um, or the arts. So I feel like we landed here in a really lucky moment, um, right before kind of everything started to kind of blossom. Um, so, you know, I, I am very grateful to be here. I think it's such a rarity that uh, that much funding and resources get funneled into the arts. It's a, a real great thing. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, when I first moved here, I actually worked at Crystal Bridges. I um, ended up um, applying for a job as a museum educator. And so I had a part-time job where I'd go in and take school tours, do school tours um, with K-12. through And uh, I mean, every day I would walk into that place. I don't know if you've ever visited, but it's absolutely beautiful. It's just kind of really green, lush landscape, beautiful art trails, um, you know, really a uh, nice collection of American art um, and the way they originally had it set up, um, which has shifted now, but um, it was kind of like walking through a history book because you would start, um, yeah, at the beginning and then kind of walk through American history um, or American art. Um, so kind of doing those tours was really great because they kind of backed to back with like what students were learning um, in their history classes. Um, and so, you know, that just walking in there just made me feel like, like, gosh, I can't even believe like this museum or, you know, organization like lives here in Arkansas. Um, I just, it, it is kind of just an amazing resource to have, like not just for the community um, because it's free to visit. Um, but it's also great for the region, but also great for the university. Um, Cause all of the, I mean, they just have like a really great um, artist speaker series um, and programming, which is like, really nice to have as kind of a supplement to the student education. It's so great for those students to have that resource, to have the museum and to have good facilities like that. And, you know, to feel that connectivity of having those visiting artists come in, it's a, it's a really nice situation for them. But changing gears, wait, you said you grew up on a farm, right? Um, Central Valley. So it's Visalia between Fresno and Bakersfield. It's nicknamed uh, the the gateway to Sequoia National Park. So it's like the it's the last kind of like big town that you'll um, drive through before you head up to Sequoia National Park. Um, So it was uh, but we actually lived in a small town outside of that, um, a farming town called Ivanhoe. Um, And it's all like basically citrus and cotton. And so my mom immigrated from Vietnam during the war and my father immigrated from Mexico. Um, And so, you know, my father worked, I mean, he picked oranges for basically my entire childhood. Um, And so we lived out in the country on a little piece of land. And how did they meet? They met at a party. (laughs) So, So the funny thing is like my my parents, when they met, they didn't really speak English very well. Um, and so, um, they met at a party, um, and then they ended up 
you know, getting married and having me. And um, we all kind of learned English together, which is like the, you know, kind of the strange thing that happened in our household. So English was super broken that my, that my parents um, would speak. Um, and my, you know, my mother still, my, my mom speaks pretty English pretty well now at this point. Um, and my father, you know, probably the same, but you know, he still lives in California. So they ended up divorcing. I, I like to joke that like, oh yeah, well, once they realized they could communicate, like they realized they weren't compatible. <laughs> um, so my father still lives in California, um, still has goats and chickens and, um, and, uh, but you know, he, he's still, he's, you know, in California, you can pretty much get, we're in Ivanhoe and Visalia, you can pretty much get by still live to just speaking Spanish. So, um, especially cause he still works like with farms. Well, as a creative person, did you see things in your parents that were creative, like outside of their jobs? Yeah. I mean, my, so, you know, they worked all the time to be able to provide for my brother and I, and, um, they, my dad, you know, he was basically like the farm hand, um, at like a major like citrus company. Um, and during his off time, he would like use their shop and like weld birds out of rakes or like weird kind of like folk art and like bring it home and like decorate our lawn. And then like a week later, my mom would like tuck it into a closet somewhere. And, (laughs) but like every like month, something, some random like animal shape would show up made out of like random steel parts. Um, so, you know, I watched my dad kind of do that and he loved gardening and like kind of manicuring the lawn. And, um, you know, I saw that kind of, uh, kind of like creative spark in him. Um, he used to sit on the edge of his bed and like draw in this notebook. He would draw nude women's and I would like, like kind of like look, but then kind of be embarrassed and I would like run away. <laughs> um, so my mom, she would, she worked in a kitchen. Um, basically she worked the same in the same kitchen for her entire working career. Um, she started as like a dishwasher and then like made her way to like um, the kitchen lead or like the head cook. Um, and it was for, um, uh, like a retirement home. Um, so, uh, after our, you know, she would work early in the morning and be home by early afternoon. Um, and then she had a side business where she would sell cakes, um, like birthday cakes, wedding cakes. So I just would sit and just watch. I was like mesmerized by the way that she could just like control whipped cream and icing. (laughs) Um, so <laughs> she just taught herself that. Well, so I think her, her, the job she had would pay for like these professional development courses uh, for her. So she would like, I mean, it was kind of amazing. She would like learn how to like carve like watermelons into like crazy animal shapes and <laughs> like make mango flowers, you know? Um, so I kind of watched my mom do that a lot. Um, uh, at home, you know, when I, after she got home, after I got home from school, you know, she'd make a cake and she'd go to work on Saturday and then she'd be like, okay, this guy's coming to pick up this cake tomorrow morning. You're going to have to like sell it to him. And I'm like, okay, I can do this. And I was like, just, you know, in my, I was like, just don't touch the cake. Like whatever you do, Linda, just let them get the cake out of the fridge. Like you don't touch the cake. And I'm like, okay, don't touch the cake. Um, so, uh, you know, I think, and then she always like did a lot of sewing. Like she sewed a lot of um, my clothes as a young kid. Um, you know, she let me pick the fabrics, and then she'd make me these like 
really weird, like, matching outfits that I'd wear to school, um, which I still have one of them, and I keep wanting to, like, um, change out the elastic and, like, have Una wear it. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so, you know, I kind of watch them, like, be creative in that way. Um, Yeah, it was, like, integrated into your daily routine. It's like a utilitarian extension of your day-to-day and not something that was kind of separate. I'm sure subconsciously you felt like a comfort with being creative. It's the day-to-day. Yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, and it just kind of made me, like, be a really good problem solver as a kid. Um, You know, just seeing my dad using, like, scrap metal. um, You know, I would... Oh, there was this TV show about... um, I can't remember what it was called, but this guy, you would like draw and you could like do drawings with him and then like mail them in. And if you were lucky enough, he would like show it on television. Um, But then he would do like these craft projects and I never had the right like craft materials. You know, he's like, oh, you need like three, like, you know, um, whatever those fuzzy wire stick things are, pipe cleaners, three pipe cleaners. And I'm like, I don't have pipe cleaners. So I would like go rummage around and try to find three pipe cleaner type things and you know, so I'd always like try to do the projects, but I always had to like, you know, makeshift all the materials to figure out how to do it. Um, you know, so, you know, I kind of like, I think as a kid, like I always like found alternative ways to like try to figure out how to make things. Um, but art was never like, you know, I went to a public school and art was like, you know, crayons and paper wasn't, um, it, it wasn't a thing that I really experienced until I was, um, shoot, probably like a junior in college. Oh, wow. What did you start out in? So it was a funny, kind of like a funny, random, like I just kind of fell into it. So I went to the community college in town um, and got my AA in like liberal studies. And I was like, oh, I'll just be a psych major. Like, I feel like this seems like a good thing I could do. Um, And uh, it was time to transfer colleges. (laughs) I just went to the counselor and I was like, it's time to transfer. So, I mean, you know, I, my parents didn't go to college. They, they aren't, they don't understand the college system and how to, um, kind of guide me in like getting through college. Um, and so I kind of had to figure everything out on my own. Um, so I basically went to the counselor and was like, I, I'm ready to transfer to get you know, my degree. And she's like, well, what do you want to major? And I'm like, I have no idea. And she's like, well, take this aptitude test and that'll kind of help you narrow down like fields that you might be interested in. And I was like, okay, great. So I went and took this test and it's like, you should be a farmer. And I'm like, I don't want to be a farmer. Like I, I, it's not something I'm interested in doing. And that was the first recommendation. (laughs) Yes. Was the first question. Did you grow up on a farm? (laughs) <laughs> I, right yeah like it was like do you like animals I'm like yeah I love animals of course I love who doesn't love animals um so you know I went back and I'm like you know I just I, I these these you know areas that this test picked out I'm just not necessarily sure that's what I want to do I'm kind of a just a really indecisive person just in general um and so she's like well what classes have you taken lately and what do you you know what do you really like about it I'm like well I'm taking this art appreciation class it's pretty interesting and you know I'm just really enjoying it she's like okay you're gonna pick art as your major and you're gonna transfer and you can take some art classes and then if you don't like it you can change your major and I'm like great let's let's just try that out 
So um, I applied to a bunch of state colleges in California and ended up going to California State University of Chico and enrolled in my three very first art classes, which were sculpture, printmaking, and ceramics. And, um, and I ended our history class. And it was like the hardest semester of my life. I mean, one, I had never really, I don't think I'd ever been to a museum ever. Um, you know, the, I, I hadn't really been exposed to like fine art. Um, so, you know, it was a really big wake up call. Um, you know, my understanding of art was something very different than what I think my professors were kind of presenting to me. So it was a really huge learning curve. Um, and, uh, but it was really challenging and I think that's why I stuck with it because I didn't get it. Like I just, it was really, really hard conceptually and technically I really loved it because I loved, I've always loved working with my hands. It seems like a big adjustment where art growing up is something that's so much a part of your day-to-day and your, your day-to-day experience and then it being translated into this idea of making artwork being correlated to this higher idea of conceptual rigor and a connection with something more than the day-to-day experience. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I, I just remember, you know, just trying to kind of funnel and funnel ideas and try to understand. I had a hard time, you know, kind of getting to the same level as my peers conceptually at the beginning, um, just because I, I mean, I never read any sort of contemporary art at that point. I mean, but I loved it. I mean, I just would go to the library and just like eat up all the art books. And, um, you know, I like basically, yeah, like art became my life. Um, uh, you know, I would spend all my extra time just kind of in the library looking and trying to catch up. Basically, I felt like I was trying to catch up with everybody else. Um, but also I just, the act of making to me was like so comforting. Um, even though it was something that I didn't do in my free time before, um, you know, I, I would maybe buy some canvases and try to paint, but it was, you know, it was just for fun. It was a very short period of time that I would try to do these things, you know, before I went to take my first art classes. Um, and I just remember getting, a grade that I thought would be higher in my (laughs) ceramics class, that first ceramic class. I just remember thinking like, wait a minute, how does, how did I not, how did that grade, I don't get it. Like I did all the projects. I never really got any feedback saying that it like where I failed, nothing exploded. Like I just don't like where, what did I miss? And so what I ended up doing was like, I'm just going to take another ceramic class. I obviously missed something. I don't know what it was that I missed, but maybe I'll pick it up in the second class and figure out how to, yeah, fill in that gap. And so anyways, for like how I ended up working in so much in clay was basically I just, um, it was just more of a kind of like I had to prove to myself that I could understand it. (laughs) Well, now looking back tangentially, 
Um, do you feel like it was difficult? Well, did you have any siblings? I was the younger sibling, and my brother was actually a half-brother, so he was much older than I was. Okay, so you were kind of on your own growing up. Well, I guess growing up in a situation where you kind of have to figure everything out, and I feel like people who grow up in that situation become strong, and they you know, make, make their decisions, and they carve their way, and it, it builds a certain strength of conviction and character and, and drive in a person. Yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, I was like, mom, I really want to take a dance class. So she was like, okay. And she like walks away and then comes back and hands me a phone book. And she's like, okay, find your dance school. And I'm like, oh, like I have to figure this out. So I'm like, I open up that phone book and I'm calling all of the dance schools to figure out where to have a, to get lessons. Um, so, you know, that's pretty much been my life is like, here's the phone book. <laughs> well, I feel like it's probably frustrating at the time, but it's it's actually probably a good thing because it ends up making you, you know, more strong and you're and and more, you know, focused. Yeah, and I think it also is like it just um you know, just thinking about like, you know, kind of the way that I've maneuvered through life in a sense of like, well, I'll try this and if it doesn't work, I always know I could do, you know, I could I could do any job. Like yeah. I mean, like a, when you when I think about like a blue collar job, like, yes, I could I could manage a restaurant like I could do that. I could or, you know, I could I could be a secretary. I could do these things. That's all things I know I can do. So taking the risk to be an artist to me was like. First of all, I always told my parents I was going to be an educator just to like. Ease their mind a little bit. <laughs> I think they just also didn't really understand what it meant to be an artist either. But and I kind of didn't either until I mean I still am tr- still trying to grasp the ideas of it. But yeah. um, but I you know I think for me like just being able to take those risks like I always knew I was capable of like working. Like my parents yeah. worked really hard, and I think I learned like a really good work ethic from them. Right. Um. So just you know being able to take that risk of like saying like, well, I'm going to try this thing. And if it doesn't work, you know, I'll I'll figure it out. Like I know what it's like to live in a very low socioeconomic situation. Like I understand that and I'm not afraid of it because I know I can, I I will be fine. Like I'll always be fine. Yeah. I grew up in, you know, a family where we didn't have a ton of money and there wasn't that pressure or that, you know, feeling of like, if, if I wasn't making a lot of money that, what would happen. There was no anxiety about that. It was just, I was never really acclimated to that. So whenever I went to school and I decided to become an artist, it was kind of like, you know, it's just what I wanted to do. I didn't feel that pressure or that worry that like, you know, what if I'm not going to be, you know, super successful and have all these things. It was just kind of like, do what you want. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my first job was at McDonald's at the age of 16. I was like, mom, I really want a car. And she's like, if you want a car, you have to get a job. And I'm like, okay. So my 16th birthday, I went straight to McDonald's and I was like, I need an application. And I got a job on my birthday, which was <laughs> hilarious that I did. But but I got a car in the end, which was kind of, you know. Yeah, I think about that adage of, you know, if you're young and you struggle or if you come up with not a lot given to you, it, it makes you work harder, you're more driven, or, or if it's a almost bad in a way to give kids too many resources because then they become complacent. I know that's kind of like a cliche, but you know, as a parent, you wonder about those things. I know. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's crazy. I uh, we just bought a phone for, like a play phone for our daughter, um, and it's actually like a rotary phone with a cord. <laughs> Remember those? And I was like, whoa, she's like, doesn't even know what this thing is. <laughs> and I think like that's kind of like the amazing thing about having a kid is like, I think a lot of my work kind of is this way of seeing things and seeing the world and. It's so refreshing for me to like watch her try to understand what objects are and things are and how things function. And like sometimes when she asks me questions like, well, why, you know, you know, like, why do wheels turn, you know? And I'm like, should I tell her? Like, should I like kill that mystery? (laughs) I mean, like I do want to tell her, but at some point it's like, everything we know is learned and like when you learn something then all of a sudden like the mystery of that thing is now gone and for me to like watch her kind of like understand like what this phone does and how it functions um if I tell her what it used to do or what it's supposed to do then all of a sudden like she'll understand it for that thing rather than like her understanding it for what it could have been to her like I had mentioned that earlier that we had like really broken English, you know, in our home. And, um, you know, my mom, like she would tell me the craziest things. She would say like, you know, like, oh, you know, don't put too much toilet paper in the toilet or it's going to choke. And I'm like, what? What? Like, really? You know? And then in my head, I'm like, oh, she just like, oh, she just means it's going to clog. So, you know, it was like these weird, like she just like made this like very animate world around me everything was alive and I remember I'd often like take little slips of paper and slide them under this little spot this little carpet spot that like lifted up and I would feed the carpet little pieces of paper um and so basically you know like my entire childhood I had empathy for like every inanimate thing around me yeah um but nobody really and you know and like fiction books, children's books, like it's often animating the inanimate. In my head, it felt right, you know? Nobody ever told me like, yeah, Linda, that chair is not alive. You know, (laughs) like nobody ever actually articulated that to me in any way. But now the way that I perceive objects very much is like, I want to know its history. I want to know where it came from, where, you know, in college, everything was like from a thrift store. So like, I wanted to know what life did you live before you came to like my home now experiencing this new life. Was that a, uh, a result of her improvising or making sort of homemade idioms? I think a lot of it has to do uh, with just kind of like being able to articulate with like the, the vocabulary that she had. Um, but also, um, Probably maybe a little bit with like uh, language and and kind of, uh, you know, we don't genderize objects here in English or in English, but in other languages they do kind of genderize objects. Um, And I think my mom is just incredibly wacky, like like her... Like, I still, like, every time I'm like, Mom, you are nuts. Like, the, like the way that she kind of, her view of the world is, like, I mean, just completely, like, I don't know how she gets from point A to Z sometimes. 
and it like amazes me like the paths and the ways that she kind of works through things um I think it's maybe just my mom my mom is just kind of like a weird cool person (laughs) well you have such an interesting story I'm sure that you know those experience inform your work in some way shape or form yeah yeah I mean it, it definitely has made me think more about I mean like my you know uh I think the root of my my work is about you know kind of understanding the objects that live around us I mean it started with the exploration of dust and thinking about the relationship between dust and objects um and kind of thinking of like if dust or does an object see dust as a shield or a blanket or like a protector to the world or does the object see the dust as like a nuisance a sign of uncleanliness um you know so like what is that relationship between those two things um so then I start to think about relationships with everything like you know the coffee cup sitting on your table um that basketball hoop you know on that door behind you um you know like what is the relationship between um those two things you know, so, but then I started, you know, to kind of think about, um, the, uh, objects and human, like our relationships with those things, which kind of led me to like the work that I'm starting to think about now, um, working with some textiles, um, and thinking about like, for instance, like the Turkish rug, um, and thinking about like how a Turkish rug is handed down from generation to generation to generation, um, and how that rug has, will impact the person that it's, the generation that it's with, um, by its presence and it, whatever it has experienced, it will be carried on through that rug and it will continue to like impact all the generations in the future. So not only is the person that is, has the rug is impacted by that rug, but the rug is also impacted by that person. Um, there is a theory to this and it's called sympathetic magic. Basically it's like, yeah, the relationships between things and how, and it, and it's across many, many cultures. Like for instance, um, there's one culture where like when you lose your first tooth, they like stick it in a tree. And when that, if that tree grows up to be, um, you know, healthy and strong, then that person will also kind of carry that same strength. Um, But if somehow the tree becomes ill in some way, um, it'll also impact that person. So no matter no matter the distance of the tree and that human, they'll forever be impacted by each other. Um, So I started to think about this with objects that we interact with, you know, whether that's like the chair that you're sitting on or the cup that you're drinking out of. And and, you know, will those things be passed on to, you know, your future generations or to another person and how their experiences will be impacted. And I know this all seems a little weird, but I think a lot of it has to kind of maybe deal with this idea that like when my parents moved to the States, they only had their clothes. Like they didn't have, they didn't come with family heirlooms or family photos or, you know, everything that they had was left behind. And I don't have any of those um, like histories, you know, um, and I still don't because my most of my family still live in Vietnam or Mexico. Can you talk a bit about 
what the materiality of the work means and how that relates to what you're making? Well, I think working with clay, um, I mean, at first it was just like this challenge of manipulating a material, um, you know, and then when I went to grad school, you could work in, you know, I went to a pretty interdisciplinary program. So I actually kind of didn't work so much in clay just because you can execute your ideas so much faster in other materials. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I often worked in mixed media, um, just trying to use whatever materials I could to execute the ideas. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, I, I uh, went to the clay studio after grad school to for a residency and it's kind of a great residency because you can stay up to five years. Nice. Um, I stayed for two, but I was there and I thought, well, you know, I should probably just try to make something out of clay again. <laughs> um, since I am at this clay residency. So I, you know, kind of got back into it. Um, then, and I think just being able to manipulate the material, um, into any kind of shape that you want to, it's almost has that like, to me, like, that same kind of approach that my mom had and kind of um, sculpting with icing and cake and, and whipped cream. And, um, you know, it had that like tactability of like using your hands. Um, So I think um, being able to work in clay, I felt like I, I'm always trying, like I understand how clay works and I'm always trying to figure out how to like break the rules of clay Um, you know, I'd often like, was like, oh, I think I'm just going to like dump this glaze into this clay. And everyone's like, you shouldn't do that. That won't work. And I'm like, but it might work. Let me just try it. You know? (laughs) Um, so it's like a more, maybe like an intuition to like want to work in that material. Um, I don't know if it really necessarily has any sort of like, you know, conceptual beginnings for me, um, other than like, I know how to work with it. It always will be a challenge, no matter what. I was just talking to somebody the other day. It's like, no matter no matter how many years you work with this material, like there are still so many unknowns. Um, every time I put something into a kiln, I'm like holding my breath to know if it like survived, because <laughs> um, it's it. You know, I feel like as you continue to work, I'm always continuing to try to figure out like how to make the material do what I want it to do. Um, and not necessarily like me knowing the boundaries and the rules of what clay can do, but knowing like, how can I push it even further from what I know it can do? Um, so, you know, I think working with the material for me at this point is a technical challenge. Um, I'm always trying to push it and figure it out, um, and trying to figure out how to use it to kind of, uh, work with the ideas or concepts that I'm kind of playing around with. I also am not afraid to use any other material. Um, I don't, I'm not like a ceramic purist in any way. (laughs) I am taking this like clay and glaze chemistry class online and it is making my brain hurt so (laughs) bad. Um, But, um, you know, like if I need to use epoxy to glue something together, I will. Um, I, uh, you know, love um, working collaboratively with the weavers in Oaxaca and I'm going to head to a glass shop today and try to get some glass cuts. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty, you know, I'll use whatever materials I need to use, but, um, but the process of clay for me is 
and the making of clay and like sitting in my studio and like getting my hands into clay is actually just really enjoyable and I just really kind of just love manipulating the material um I love just like putting on some music and just like letting go and like just being like in my own space and making you know this whole like shutdown um situation um you know as an introvert has really was really good for me to be home in my own studio um and just kind of in my own zone and it was kind of actually you know I feel really privileged to say that that it it was a, it was good for me and my studio time you know um I know it was yeah. not the situation for a lot of people but um but because we have a studio at home it was it was it was really good did you feel any pressure of uh weight of like a purist side of working with clay no I didn't I don't I mean I went to an undergrad that also I mean I worked really closely with my sculpture professors um, and my ceramic professors and you know that idea of like craft there wasn't super heavy you know it was um, I mean yeah they wanted you to make things that didn't explode and crack and you know it's part of like the technical um, proficiency that they wanted you to have but But they also, you know, I think the craft presence there wasn't um, heavy. Um, You know, I think the wheel throwing class I took was like wheel as a tool for sculpture. So I don't even think I even really ever made like a functional pot until um, maybe, you know, a few years after grad school. Um, So I think... um, and then in grad school, you know, I didn't, I didn't really work in clay. And then at the clay studio, I did feel a little pressure to, you know, kind of like make something that was uh, crafted in a way, you know. Um, when I think about materials, like I have this tendency to work in materials that are like craft, like I guess historically craft-based materials in a way when I think about like working in clay and working in textiles and working in glass, you know, like they have this kind of, and I, and I love it. Like, I don't, I mean, I feel so close to like textiles. I mean, with my mom, like making my own clothes and, um, you know, I, I don't mind kind of that, um, you know, that kind of labeling to that in any way. Um, I, I think I kind of restrain my, like, I, I kind of, uh, not restrained, but I think I, I don't put a label on kind of the type of work that I make. I just make my work. And, you know, I'm very much a part of the ceramic kind of community, um, especially as an educator. Um, well, yeah, and you've done some pretty amazing residencies, too. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that community. I mean, that's the, that's the whole reason why I became an artist, you know? They're, yeah. It's such a warm and welcoming community. I mean, they... I, you know, it's, it's, it's a community that comes together with potlucks over, you know, with handmade pots and, you know, you come together to fire a kiln like for days upon end and cutting wood and, um, you know, so it's like, it has this natural, um, it has this like really natural like community that is, that is built within that kind of material. And it's, I mean, I honestly, like, it's kind of probably the reason why I like stuck around because, you know, like you feel like you're a part of something and people care about what you're doing. 
Um, and, you know, I've made my best friends within those communities. Um, so for me, like, there, there, I'm sure there are many people in that community that would look at my work and say, there's a crack on the bottom of that. Like, I don't know, you know. But for me, I'm like, yeah, like, I can't, con- like, it's porcelain. Like, it's really hard to not get a crack on, like, a, you know, a, you know, a three-foot-wide thing. Um, but for me, like, it, you know, it's, um, it's not something that's going to make me not want to be a part of that community. Um, so, but, you know, I think, and then there was that whole movement, you know, uh, over a decade ago with the sloppy craft and, every, you know, all kind of blue chip artists kind of coming in and using clay and, you know, not knowing what clay does. But to me, like, as a person that's been working in clay for so long, I find the work that they make to be so mesmerizing because like being able to come to a material with fresh hands is something that I can never do with clay. Like my hands are so trained and like the reflexes of like knowing what a clay body can do is natural at this point. Well, let's change gears. What about music? Um, Is it something you listen to in the studios? Has it been big in your life? So... I don't know. I think it's just all over the spectrum. I mean, like, I think um, in the home, my mom had cassette tapes of uh, Vietnamese music, and she still has those tapes and still plays them for my daughter, which is really crazy. On cassette, yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so basically it was either that, which I don't speak Vietnamese or Spanish, so I don't know what any of the lyrics are but it was super soothing um she had all these dolly parton vinyl like uh and so she had a whole collection of that um and uh my dad listened to mexican music um and mainly just on the radio though like you know he didn't own anything um and then yeah i mean basically that's what i grew up with and pop music like on the radio um, like music wasn't huge. It wasn't any really a part of my life. Um, I mainly danced and it was to like, I clogged, um, for pretty much my entire childhood. And it was mainly to like country music, like nineties country music, eighties, nineties country music. So, um, but I didn't listen to that, like outside of like dancing. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of what it was. And then, you know, I went through waves of different things that I liked um, through high school. Uh, I went through kind of like a punk, you know, movement, you know, with my friends. And we'd go to these like small punk shows in like basements and like get sprayed with mace all the time. It was horrible. But it, I mean, it was just kind of like these smaller little punk bands that would come through town. Um, and then we we go to Fresno all the time too and, and watch bands. Nothing ever came through Visalia. So <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so what do you have coming up? Do you have any shows on the horizon or, uh, and what's the best way people can check out your work? Um, I mean, I guess there should be some shows coming up unless they get pushed. I feel like this year has been so weird that, you know, everything kind of got canceled or postponed, which in a way was like really kind of, again, like nice for that studio time to like have some time to slow down. Um, but there should be a show opening, um, in September 
um, at a gallery in Paris and then another show opening in Texas in October. Um, and then I, uh, probably the fairs if they happen. I mean, so if Untitled and Design Miami happen, I think those are um, on the table if, if they happen um, or in some way, maybe online, I don't know. But um, so yeah, that's kind of the rest of 2020. Um, and then, uh, yeah. Well, it was great talking to you. Thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, great talking to you too. Sound and Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find out more about the podcast at soundandvisionpodcast.com, and you can find more images related to the podcast on Instagram at soundandvisionpodcast. You can find out more about my work at brianalfred.net or on Instagram at alfredstudio. Many thanks to Evan Marion for the intro-outro music, Michael Lovett for the introduction, Golden Artist Colors for their long-standing sponsorship of the podcast, and also to Linda for taking the time out to speak to me. You can support the podcast by going over to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. Many thanks for listening, and many thanks for your support.